Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Hello and welcome everybody. Now before we get started today, I want to tell those of you listening at home about an event that I know will be an inspiration to you. The Global Regeneration Collab will be hosting their TEDx event online this year, and you're all invited to attend. The theme is Possible Futures, Acknowledging Stories of Regeneration in the Global South. There will be three panel discussions focusing on the story of the Global South, decolonization and decolonizing the mind, and pluriversality and regeneration. This event will also feature breakout conversation rooms in various languages to promote exploration of subjects and ideas in a more intimate setting. So come and join us on October 17th to explore world history, cultural evolution, the age of complexity, maturation of globalization, human consciousness, and so much more. You can find the link for the signups and the opportunity to donate and support this event in the show notes for this episode at AbundantEdge.com. Now, I know they're also looking for volunteers to translate some of these discussions, so if that's something you're up for, you can find the sign up there as well. I look forward to seeing you all there. All right, so in the last handful of episodes, we've explored permaculture earthworks for water harvesting landscapes and key line design on large scales. As a complement to those topics, I got in touch with Brad Lancaster, the author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, both volumes 1 and 2, which have recently been re-released and expanded in new editions. Now, Brad is an expert in the field of rainwater harvesting and water management, and whose work I've been following for a long time. He's also a permaculture teacher, designer, consultant, and co-founder of the nonprofit Desert Harvesters which teaches the public how to identify, harvest, and process many of the native food plants endemic to the arid southwestern U.S. He's also been instrumental in helping to change water management policy and government incentives in the city of Tucson to help others implement water-wise catchment and reuse features on their properties. In this interview, we cover a wide range of topics, from the difference between active and passive water harvesting technology and reading the landscape to determine how to work with the natural surroundings, to the increasing importance for water stewardship in non-arid climates, and why it's so important to connect and invest in the place you already live, rather than thinking that moving to another place will solve your environmental worries. Brad also gives great advice on home-scale water harvesting and storage, which are all topics that are covered extensively in his books, and he's done an incredible job with the help of many experts and collaborators to compile tons of resources that are available to help you get started on his website, which I link to in the show notes for this episode. So from here, I'll hand the discussion over to Brad. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure, and I've followed your work for a long time, and as much as I'd love to like go into your background, it's super well documented in so many other places. So I'll open with a question that you've talked about in the past and has really kind of sunk in for me. And that's the importance of committing to where you are and investing in your home's health and regeneration for the long term. I know that's a realization that you made pretty early on and before had been thinking about leaving the Tucson area and maybe looking for greener pastures, so to speak. Can you talk a little about why you decided to stay and invest in your local area? Yeah, well, the the person that I guess really solidified that decision for me was um, this African water farmer, Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko, who was a huge mentor for me. Um, Even though I spent very little time in the scope of life with him, um, just just a matter of days, um, uh, he was very uh, instrumental in in, in my direction. So, uh, I was blown away by what he had done, um, by committing to make change where change was most possible in his own life and, uh, on, uh, he, he and his family's own site. And, uh, they turned what had been, um, just an eroding piece of land, uh, that was not productive into, uh, a, a relative oasis, um, simply by planting the rain 
stewarding more life um, in a way that gave back far more than it took from the environment. Uh, and uh, I, it was extremely inspirational because he, he had very little resources um, and yet did incredible work, far more, far better work than I've seen many people with a lot of resources do. And uh, so after um, spending a day with him, I, uh, I started venting some of my frustrations of how bad I saw things going uh, in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona, and how we had been depleting our water resources, our soil fertility, and so on. And uh, I told him I, I didn't want to be part of that problem. Um, and so I was thinking of leaving and asked him for some advice and uh, of where I might consider going. And he, he was very clear. He said, uh, no, you have to go home and you have to set your roots deeper than you ever thought possible. Because if you run from your problems, you're just going to plant problems everywhere you go. So you've got to uh, instead try and figure out how can you turn these problems into solutions. And if you're able to do that, then uh, you can go anywhere um, because you'll have that ability to shift problems into solutions. Um, so um, for whatever reason, that I was very ready for that at that time and uh, went home. Uh, to make that commitment, uh, and not knowing exactly how I was going to turn things around, but I did have the inspiration of the work of Mr. Peary and his family, and I came home to figure out, well, how can I tweak that to the unique conditions of, of my site? Uh, and I've just found over time that uh, it's, been, it's been very rewarding and you know, definitely challenging at times, too, but uh, no matter how bad something goes uh, out in the world, you know, in a meeting, in an interaction, uh, what have you, I can come home and I can see things going in the right direction. Even if it's, even if it's small, you know, even if it's only a, the growth of a few leaves <laughs> out of a budding tree, um, that's still going in the right direction and is very uplifting for me. And uh, I'm able to learn on a daily basis uh, with what is right outside my door. Um, so it's, it's very direct, very immediate. Uh, and I found, uh, it's been powerful and in inspiring others because they see, oh, you're doing this on your home scale, your neighborhood scale, um, which then links and informs the community scale. And they see, I, I can do that too. So, uh, yeah, it's empowering. I love that story, and it's been one of the reasons why I've connected with your work a lot. I mean, I've been traveling my whole life. I was born in Japan. I grew up mostly in Minnesota, and I live in Spain now. Before I came here, I was doing projects in Guatemala and in Senegal and in the Philippines. And as much as I love everything that I've learned and gained from the traveling experience, I've also noticed that everywhere I go, I sort of bring my own baggage and my own problems with me, or they find a way of manifesting in whatever new situation that I find myself, you know, life gives you lessons that you need to learn, and you can't run away from them. And sort of putting in roots, like you said, digging those roots down ever deeper is the way that I have found to not just gain insight that you never would have from an outside perspective coming into a project and giving advice on it and you know, just applying the, the cold science of restoration, but understanding the people and learning the story of place and becoming a part of the community that you are trying to influence plays so much of a part in the process that I would almost say that it's, it's a much bigger part than the actual techniques or the work done on the ground because of all of the emergent properties of those connections that don't necessarily start to come out in the beginning. It's something that takes a little while to establish. And it's just one of the parts of your message that has always resonated with me. But with that said, let's go into talking about the two forms of water harvesting, both active and passive. And if you could give me a little overview of the differences between those, and then we'll explore them deeper. Yeah. So um, active is where people most often go when they first hear about water harvesting. And uh, that would be a, a system with a tank and a valve on it. 
um, because somebody has to actively turn on or off that valve for the system to work. So water can be released from the tank. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be a person. It could be a mechanical timer. But still, that mechanical timer is dependent on a, on a person. Um, and uh, so active systems tend to be... Uh, tend to be more expensive um, and they're reliant on um, manufactured or built elements. Um, whereas a passive system, uh, that tends to be a living system um, where your tank is now, say, the soil and the vegetation as opposed to a manufactured tank. Um, so what that would look like... Uh, it, a passive system would be like a rain garden where you've got this basin in the landscape that's lower than the surrounding area or hardscape. And the runoff from the uh, surrounding area is directed to that basin. So you might direct roof runoff to it, maybe street runoff, maybe just uh, runoff from the adjoining landscape. Uh, so there's a greater concentration of water there. And then you are um, collaborating with soil life to create a much more absorbent living sponge of fertile, high organic matter soil so that you're not storing the water on the soil, on top of the soil like a pond. Instead, you're rapidly infiltrating it so it's subsurface storage. That way, you don't lose water to evaporation as you would with a pond. You don't have an issue of breeding mosquitoes because there's no standing water in which breeders, in which uh, mos mosquitoes can breed. And uh, then how do you access that water that's now stored subsurface? You plant pumps in the form of vegetation. So you can utilize and, and access that water in the form of uh, fruit, you know, food production, livestock fodder, wildlife habitat, shelter, you know, shade, uh, and so on. Uh, and that that passive strategy also helps recharge our groundwater, which recharges our springs, our creeks, and our rivers. So it helps recharge surface waters as well in that sense. Um, and I find that passive strategies tend to have a much higher capacity than active strategies because once your once your mechanic your manufactured tank is full until you empty it you you can't add any more water okay whereas uh, a rain garden um, an earthwork uh, it is infiltrating water constantly and making more capacity and the more vegetation and the more life you have uh, the more it cycles and pumps that water more quickly so I find like let's say if we get a two inch rainstorm uh, one day, um, all my tanks are full and all my rain gardens, they fill up. Um, but in a matter of a couple hours, all the water is infiltrated and they're ready for another two inch storm just a couple hours after that initial two inch storm. Whereas those tanks won't be ready for another two inch storm until I've emptied them, which is going to be weeks later. Um, so I find the passive strategies tend to be far more effective at flood control as, uh, well as, um, water resiliency and getting you through dry times. And there, I find the passive systems tend to be far more multifunctional, um, because, uh, they're growing so much more life. They're growing resources. Uh, tanks, themselves aren't growing so many resources. Um, the water released from them can, uh, but again, it's not, it's not as high a capacity. It's not, it's not as high a volume as the passive systems. So I, I use the two together. Um, so if you're going to put in a tank system, make sure at a minimum you always overflow its water to a passive system, earthworks, rain gardens. Uh, so um, you're making the most uh, of the system. And and I sure. just wanted I just wanted to jump really quick to um, what we were discussing before about committing to place. Um, oh yeah. The uh, the great I love to try and find both uh, historical active and passive systems in my area to see well what what worked for the people in this local climate. Uh, so that's a great thing to do. Um, but uh, 
that process also further connects me to place because I start learning more about the place's history, the cultural and traditional lineages, um, the ecological lineages. Uh, so um, I have found um, historic wetlands, cienegas, uh, and and whatnot, and I get to learn from how these wetter microclimates in in my area what enabled them to get established what enabled them to grow what um what damaged them at some point in their history and minimized their size uh, all that um, is other great learning that can inform how i design and steward um, my strategies back home and in my neighborhood yeah that's a very good point and that's one of the things i've enjoyed most about the design process that I've done for my own projects and that I've helped other clients through as well is that simply by doing it you're actually expanding your participation in these other aspects that maybe you didn't set out to get involved in but are inevitably going to make it a richer experience and a more resilient design by having investigated and put yourself into the the process itself yeah yeah and I've um just to share one little uh, one little story. Please. So uh, I had a client that um, was all set on active tank systems uh, when he called me for a consultation. And I went out to his site and saw that um, his roof surface was pretty low quality, not that big. And uh, he wanted the water for irrigation, not for domestic use. So it didn't really seem a priority to me. Um, whereas I saw, um, he had a little dry, uh, waterway, ephemeral waterway or arroyo as we call it on his property. And, uh, um, he had a lot of exposed bedrock from years of erosion. So I realized, wow, this guy's site is, is ripe for passive earthworks, like one rock dams and so on that we could build on top of that bedrock and we can create these amazing sponges and even potentially create um, ephemeral springs on his property um, and uh, saw uh, a little example, a uh, very small scale of where this is, had actually happened, where some rocks had just uh, uh, accumulated and, and locked themselves in the drainage, creating a, a, a small um, one rock dam, if you will, uh, behind which a lot of organic matter had accumulated, creating this sponge that held on to the water much longer. Uh, and sure enough, he relayed to me that after a good rain, um, water would seep out of that area for a number of days. So it's like, great, there's the example. Now we can just uh, build on this and improve it so you can have ephemeral springs that last for weeks as opposed to days. Um, and uh, And that's the direction we took. And that was the result. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so inspiring to see when you kind of have that understanding of what is possible and put in the necessary features or make the amendments or, uh, yeah, the, the little changes that are required and then nature takes over from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And each year we go back, it's better and better. Whereas you every year you go back to see a tank, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> no, it's on a road towards uh, not syntropy, but entropy, right? all of your built environment stuff, your mechanical solutions, and most of them are just trying to imitate much more efficient and effective elements in nature. Like you mentioned, uh, the pump, pump system bringing water up from the ground. Well, in the best case scenario, maybe you've got a high quality, high efficiency pump that runs on solar power. Or you could put in a plant, which is already solar powered and requires no maintenance except for that it has a life cycle that you need to attend to. Yeah, yeah. And two uh, colleagues, Van Clothier and Bill Zedike, um, colleagues and mentors uh, outside Silver City, New Mexico, on a ranch, they uh, took a degraded um, rangeland in Cienega that had eroded away. Um, and with just very simple, um, one rock high structures, about 60 of them, um, and uh, working with the landowner to shift some of their, their land management. Um, they have brought back a thriving wetlands. They've brought back uh, perennial water. And these wetlands are now growing themselves uphill, up the banks of the waterway, following water that is rising with capillary action. Uh, you know, since they've now 
uh, gained and held so much water in this amazing living system. Those rock structures they initially built, they're still there, but they're all invisible now because they're all covered with accumulated soil, organic matter, and vegetation. So now the vegetation and that living soil is the structures. Um, wow. They've completely taken over. And that's that's the goal, is how do we collaborate with natural systems in a way that we just nudge them to take over and do far better than we could ourselves. Absolutely. Well, on, so on that note, let's focus on passive rain harvesting systems and elaborate on the term that you used earlier, which is to plant the rain. Can you give me an idea of what it means to plant the rain and some ways that you can do it? Yeah. Well, think about how you plant a seed. Um, you make a little hole in the ground, uh, put the seed in there, cover it up. So we're doing the same thing. We're just not covering it up per se. Um, so we, it's easiest to plant the rain in existing low spots where water's already accumulating. Um, and if you've just got bare soil there, um, you're lacking a sponge. So, um, you would want to add organic matter. You'd want to add seed. You'd want to, um, you know, add that life of those living pumps, um, and, uh, do so in a way that, um, its capacity is going to grow over time. You know, you're going to get more organic matter that holds on to that moisture longer into the dry seasons and it has fertility and whatnot that's going to encourage more life, more living pumps, a, a wider network of roots and beneficial fungi, you know, mycelium that link into those roots and distribute that water uh, wider and further afield. Um, there's, a, um, yeah, just been some great studies that have shown that if you, if you plant the rain in a basin, um, and, uh, are directing adjoining runoff to it, that, you know, that's great. Um, but you'll never reach the full capacity of the system, the, the full potential of the system, if you don't encourage more of that life. So, um, it's key to create the habitat, not just for the vegetation, but that also that beneficial fungi, um, because the, the web-like roots of the, the fungi, the mycelium, uh, can fuse with the roots of the vegetation and expand the root area of that vegetation by hundreds of times, thereby dramatically increasing that life's ability to uptake and redistribute uh, and cycle that water you've captured in that low spot in that basin. Um, so uh, uh, I the other key thing with these I find with these, uh, this planting of the rain is it just, it makes it much easier for life to get a foothold and to take off, um, without my intervention. Once I've created that basin, that planting of the rain. Now it's, there's plenty of advantages if I stay connected and I help maintain the system. But if I design it well, uh, it can, largely maintain itself without me. Um, so in our neighborhood, uh, we have created a lot of street side and in street, um, basins when they're in the street, they're incorporated into water harvesting traffic calming features like roundabouts and intersections that are lower than the street. And we, and we direct the street runoff into the basin, uh, on street side, uh, we come out into the street, uh, constricting the street width itself to slow down traffic with what we call chicanes or pullouts. And, um, they too, uh, within the curb are lower than the street. We direct street runoff to them. So, uh, in these systems, uh, we got a grant through the city and the county to um, create these, get them permitted and approved through the city. But there wasn't that much money for landscaping. Um, so uh, we planted what there was budget for. But then a number of volunteers from our neighborhood forestry effort, we came in with the seed of native plants that we felt would thrive in the various microclimates of these water harvesting traffic calming structures, um, throughout our neighborhood streets. And, uh, 
we would do this just before the um, the rainy season started, or just as the rainy season was starting. We have we have two rainy seasons in our area, and uh, it was great because we never had to water that seed. The um, the passively harvested water in these earthworks that would provide enough water. And if the rains were late, no problem. Nothing germinates until the rains come. And uh, then the plants came up. And we never had to supplementarily irrigate because they grew from seed to begin with. So their growth rate wasn't abnormal as it would be in a pampered plant nursery. <laughs> um, right. So it's been a very inexpensive way to revegetate. Um, and uh, not everything makes it. So we also learn, okay, well, what species are good, what aren't. Um, and... The awesome thing, too, is we're getting things like the coyote gourd, which grows. It's got a large tuberous root and spreading um, vine-like growth atop the ground and over other plants. And it has these wonderful gourds, which we use as seed grenades. So when the gourds mature and dry out, we make a little hole in it, fill seeds of other plants we want to germinate, and then we can huck them into other water harvesting, traffic calming, earthworks or rain gardens and nice. and stuff erupts so yeah living grenades <laughs> <laughs> beneficial grenades yeah. yeah yeah it's important to make that distinction <laughs> you're not just lobbing grenades into abandoned lots um so tell me about some of the ways that you've learned to read the landscape anywhere that you are in order to help make informed decisions about how to intervene in a positive way you talked about sort of making those basins that hold water and give it sort of the kickstart that life needs to start to expand and nature to take over. But knowing where to put those is important. Like you mentioned, you had identified an arroyo in that client's land that indicated that there was going to be a stream of water in the right time of year. What other things do you look for to kind of give you clues as to what sort of interventions are going to be effective? Yeah. So I'm definitely looking for the type of vegetation that's growing and where and its health. Um, so there are, are many species that uh, will clue you into areas that are better watered or or more drained. Um, and uh, um, so I seek those out, but um, both the, the rich spots and the poor spots. And then I just start to ask, well, why, why are they this way? Um, and I then try and look for anomalies like, uh, where in the heavily drained areas, the, the drier, more dehydrated areas with poorer soils, where is there an exception? Where is there more life, greater diversity, more soil and fertility? And what enabled that change? Um, and oftentimes it's, it's a speed hump in the flow, you know, a contour speed hump that's slowing the draining via pulled by gravity of, of water, soil and seed. Um, and it's allowing, it's instead created a net that has slowed that downward migration, um, and enabled, um, things to set and, uh, spread um, and in the best conditions, that net isn't just stable, it grows. And so then I try and look, well, how is it growing? Is, uh, is it vegetation that's growing within and on its periphery that's, that's growing that? Is it, um, more detritus being caught and, and what's enabling the capture of that detritus? Um, and so on. Um, and in the, wetter areas, the more productive areas, I'm uh, looking for anomalies there too. Like, well, where is it even more rich or where is it, where is it even starting to degrade and why? Um, and uh, then um, I try and build on what I see as reasons for, you know, positive uh, evolutions um, and uh, I'm also always looking for, well, what were those 
acts of disturbance that started a downward spiral and how have those been naturally checked out in nature um, and how could I mimic um, or be informed by uh, by those stabilizations um, and it's not just me going out and looking for this. I'm also always actively looking for mentors that have well-trained eyes who can help train mine. So um, Bill Zedike has been phenomenal that way. He's definitely a, a water whisperer. And uh, you, he's got lots of free publications that you can download. A great many of those available the kiviracoalition.org website um, and uh, to be able to walk the land with him uh, has been incredible for my learning as it was with Mr. Zephaniah Piri uh, in, in Zimbabwe um, and it's great to also uh, create uh, to tap into a community of other practitioners so um, yeah there's lots of great people um, doing this and we're all we're all learning and trying to further evolve our understanding and when we get out on the land together it's great that we can say hey look I'm I'm seeing this what are you seeing and to bounce ideas off each other to challenge each other um, and even better when we have the time to even do some simple interventions of build some simple structures and design them together and strategize well why we're putting this rock here as opposed to there and uh what what flow of water and sediment are we trying to work with in this way and how might we nudge it to be an even better collaboration with those observed patterns of water and sediment flow man i'd love to be a fly on the wall when coalitions like that get together and kind of expand upon everyone else's observations and knowledge and ideas. Those are really fun to be a part of. Um, give me an idea of the increasing importance of water stewardship in areas that are not water deficient. I know we've been using up until now mostly the case of where you are in Tucson, Arizona, which is literally a desert. And it's in a very extreme that most people don't live in, but is a fantastic laboratory as to, with these extreme conditions, figuring out what works. But water scarcity is becoming an issue even in areas that get plenty of rainfall and not working with these passive uh, solutions like you talked about is becoming more and more of a problem. Can you give me some ideas of where water-wise stewardship is important for those areas? Sure. Yeah, I've had a number of readers of my books um, write to me and tell me um, what uh, um, a great thing the, the knowledge in my books were for them. Um, because while they're surrounded by water in Louisiana, in the United States, a uh, very wet, humid climate, um, uh, because of our mistreatment of the watershed and uh, great deals of pollution, um, the vast majority of that water that surrounds them uh, is not safe to use. So um, they've been implementing a lot of these strategies, both active and passive, to capture cleaner uh, roof runoff uh, and with an active tank system. Uh, and then use living passive systems to help bioremediate and filter uh, the contaminated uh, water on the ground surface. Um, but, and both strategies are also helping reduce downstream flooding risk. Um, so this, this is very common, um, this, this potential. And... Uh, I had the chance to uh, interact with and learn from uh, colleagues in South Korea. Uh, and Seoul, South Korea is a very wet city. Um, and innovators there are pushing for this whole idea that every building that is built must have three water harvesting uh, tanks within the building. 
one for me, one for you, and one for everybody. The idea being um, the, the one for me, well, that's water I'm collecting to use however I want and or need. Uh, the, the one for you, um, well, that's the water I'm collecting in a tank that is meant to be flood control, so I don't flood you um, downstream. And the one for everybody, that third tank is to be reserved for in times of need, should there be some kind of uh, catastrophe, be it um, power goes out uh, or um, there's extreme drought, uh, there's fires, what have you, there is an on-site water reserve ready uh, for whatever is needed, and it's, it's high-quality water. So um, the, thing, the thing we have to keep in mind is uh, we are on a planet um, that where life exists because of water. Water is the lubrication of exchange, enabling nutrients, information, uh, fertility, whatnot, to be... Um, transferred from one life or element to another. Uh, and we have a very limited amount of water on this planet, especially fresh water that's, you know, not salty or whatnot. Uh, you know, less than 3% of the water on the planet is fresh water. And, um, only, um, really only 1% of the water on the planet is, is accessible. So, but yet this planet does not run out of water, um, because it's got, all these incredible living systems that have evolved to further cycle, filter um, that water myriad times. So that life does not degrade the quality of that water. It maintains or improves it. Um, and we can make a limited supply of water um, seem far less limited the more we cycle it by, you know, mimicking or collaborating with the natural systems. And in wetter climates, uh, you tend to just have far more cycling than you do in dry climates because there's a greater abundance of that water. So your vegetation in a wet climate is going to be larger and consume water at a much more rapid rate. Well, when I say consume, I should really say cycle because it's going to pump that water up through it and then re-release that water, transpire that water back into the atmosphere. Uh, so um, in wet climates, you use the same strategies we do in conceptually as we do in dry climates, but you're using a wholly different plant palette. You're using one that is... Uh, much more water needy or adapted um, to uh, to your rainfall regime. Um, and just to try and illustrate that, um, so when I create these rain gardens, these basins, uh, within them I have three distinct microclimates or planting zones, rain garden planting zones. And you can check out in my books and on my website illustrations of this. But on the bottom of the basin, you have what are the bottom zone plants. These are your most water needy, water tolerant plants. And then, uh, and also your most cold tolerant because cold air will drain into this basin and pool in the bottom of the basin. Sure. Then on the terraces, the banks of your basin, um, midway between the bottom and the top, uh, that's where I have a little bit less water adaptive and needed, uh, plantings. Um, and then on the top, I have the most arid uh, adapted, the least water needy, the least water tolerant plants. Um, so the base of the plant stays high and dry. You don't have crown rot, but the roots can still access the water down in the lower zones. Um, so uh, I created this just by seeing how different plant types grow in my area and then just mimicking that. And I've created plant lists for people that haven't yet fully observed that so they can just go to the list and these are all on my website and my books on what plant goes where uh, and I've worked with others in other bioregions to create plant lists um, for those regions and th that's all in plant section of my website but when I was in Florida it gets five times the rain that we do annually and I'm in the swamps um, it was amazing to see that they 
naturally in that ecosystem, you have those three distinct planting zones. So you've got the hardwood, the bulk of the hardwood trees growing at the top. And in the bottom, uh, you've got another hardwood, you've got the swamp cypress, but all these other species. Um, and then there's also a very rich terrace zone of plants. Um, and uh, I just I just loved it. It's like, man, I can go to any climate and I can find this pattern. Um, and uh, I just need to tap into what plants and what life likes to live where. Yeah, it's getting to know those patterns that really unlocks the things that you can rely upon, even when you're in a place that you're not terribly familiar with. Along those lines, what are you most excited about on the forefront of water harvesting and management practices that perhaps is not yet widely known or practiced in what you found around in your studies? Uh, I'd say um, Bill Zedike's work is some of what excites me the most right now. Um, and uh, outside of the, the real water freaks, I don't think it's that well known. Um, and that might in part be because it is so subtle. So um, when it's done well, you don't even see it. Um, because uh, the idea is not to celebrate the structure. The idea is to celebrate and encourage the response. And I think too often in our current societies, we're obsessed with the human built environment, um, you know, what you can purchase, what you can obtain. And, um, and, and in fact, in an older edition of my, uh, my second book, Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Islands and Beyond Volume 2, um, coming out of the permaculture world, um, I uh, had been exposed to and was pretty enamored with what I would call more heroic but less effective systems such as gabions which are these wire-wrapped uh, rock walls perpendicular to the flow of water in a drainage that create a wall. Um, and uh, they can be effective if built and maintained properly, but they create um, a, a waterfall, a sudden drop, in elevation in the in the drainage that did not exist before they were built and on the downstream side of that uh, structure um, you have the potential for erosion which can even undermine the entire structure because as the water pours over the wall on the downstream side water picks up speed as it's falling and creates a scour hole on the downstream side which can eat under the structure itself and unravel the whole structure. Um, so uh, Bill Zedike, uh, he tends to use much more subtle interventions. So in that same place, instead of doing a high wall, he put in only a one rock high structure that's many rocks wide. And instead of being wall shaped, it's very gradually speed hump shaped. So um, the structure itself is far less likely to increase the speed and the erosive capacity of the water. Instead, the structure is striving to further slow and spread the flow of water at all points, not just the upstream side, but the downstream side too. And you never build one of these alone. You always build them in a series um, so you're having to keep in mind the nested holes in which you're placing this structure. Um, and, uh, you, with these one rock dams, you seed, um, before you place the rock because the whole intention is to grow vegetation through the structure that will further stabilize it and lock it in place but will also take the place of the structure because as both the structure and the vegetation growing through it slows and spreads the flow of water, more sediment's going to drop out of the flow and accumulate. It's going to hold on to moisture longer. More seed's going to germinate. More vegetation's going to grow. And you're going to grow a structure um, 
much like the wetlands I talked about earlier in our conversation outside Silver City, New Mexico, where Bill and Van had worked. Um, and uh, so you come back years later, and the structures are completely buried. No problem. Um, what's important is they help set up the conditions where vegetation could grow, not only on top and just and adjoining the structure, but it could continue to grow between the structures. So you have continuous life that's doing a far better job of slowing, spreading, and sinking the flow of water, creating this living sponge, this soil carbon um, uh, sponge, this, this sink, this net of fertility and cycling um, that just keeps building on itself uh, over time. Um, so that's, that's what really uh, excites me. And it also um, really fuels my uh, awareness of and passion for the need to um, not just uh, preserve, but learn from and help uh, steward uh, the sponges we already have in place. Um, where we have springs and cienegas, uh, wetlands, uh, and so on, um, we, we can't keep mining from these, extracting from them, um, because we need them as our living encyclopedias, um, our living schools and teachers, uh, where we can see what works and what does not work with or without us so that they can inform, uh, yeah, better integrated systems. And what I'm getting from what you're talking about, too, is that some of these new or innovative systems are actually a lot more approachable for the average person. Like, it's going to take a big team and possibly a fairly large budget to go in and put in, you know, a big dam structure or, you know, uh, whether it's a pond or other water retention feature on a large scale. But one of these single rock dams is something that maybe two or three people could do or one person with a little bit of patience and a bit of understanding about how that ecosystem works and how water moves through that system. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, um, they're much, much easier in terms of the build out. Um, but, uh, what is, um, to, to really be successful, you do need to spend more time observing and thinking about what's the right place for this. Because if you're just randomly putting it in, um, it can actually do more harm than good. So um, you, you need to spend more time learning the patterns that you're trying to work with, which is all very doable. But um, sometimes people just don't have the attention span or the will to, to learn that. Um, and that, that's essential with these strategies. Um, I would say, though, there, that is just as essential with the more resource-intensive strategies, um, but uh, yeah, just as much. Um, and I'd also say that with these simple one-rock dams and so on, which can very easily be built by a single person, um, the, uh, these uh, at that scale of easy build are most appropriate in the smaller waterways, the tributaries, um, and where you've got uh, a much heavier flow. Um, and let's say you've got some severe erosion of a really big head cut um, that may require um, coming in with a, a backhoe with a bucket and thumb to move much larger rock. Um, you'd be using the same patterns and everything. It's just the scale would be moving up. That's the only difference, really. Um, so uh, in that case, more equipment, more resources would be needed. But it's all informed by the simpler, easier work you've done in the lower flow tributaries. And I find the best equipment operators are those that learned doing the handwork. Um, now they're just using the equipment as an extension of their hands and arms um, that tends to have bigger hydraulic biceps than their own. Yeah, I seem to see that pattern reflected in a lot of things. By doing it the simple, old-fashioned, or manual, or analog way, whatever that is, is going to make you that much more effective and nuanced in your approach when you have larger resources and bigger equipment. 
just like someone who has done every step of the process makes a better manager because they understand every step below them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to reiterate too, um, these, these same simple strategies, approaches, um, within waterways work great on roads. So, um, in the rural setting or even in the urban setting with dirt driveways, when you've got a dirt road or dirt driveway, these tend to be the most erosive parts of the landscape um, because there's no anchoring vegetation where you've got vehicles driving. So uh, there's a number of really simple strategies that I've got in my books that um, redirect that work off the road into adjoining planting areas. And uh, I've got some great stories of how a local ranch here um, really upped the capacity and uh, um, yeah, the growth in the pastures and the uh, the feed for their their livestock and wildlife by um, literally harvesting the rainwater off the dirt roads uh, and spreading it out uh, in adjoining pasture, um, which sounds like a no brainer and it, it, it should be. Uh, but what's key is to strategize where you release the water into the pasture, so you're choosing the least steep area where the natural landform is most likely to spread the water out for you. Bill Zedike says there's um, a couple of simple principles he uses. Um, you want to drain a road uh, your first chance. So immediately start draining water off the road because water doesn't do any good on a road. Um, the next principle is uh, you want to use your best chance. So that's stepping up the game. Instead of just draining the road, you're trying to drain the road to where the drained water is going to serve the most good. Where is it going to slow down and spread out the most to grow more life adjoining that road, as opposed to shooting it off at the e supposedly easiest spot onto a steep slope, which is just going to create a head cut that's eventually going to erode the road. Okay, and uh, And then you want to make sure you divert water off the road at your last chance, you know, before the road enters um, an area where it is lower than the adjoining landscape. Um, so you want to drain whatever water you can off uh, before there's no longer a chance to drain that water. You know, it's all just simple stuff, but I carry these principles in my head like a little mantra reminder as I do my... Uh, my other water harvesting principles, um, you know, the, the eight basic principles. And then I've been in my, uh, the latest editions of my books, especially volume two, I've created a whole number of principles for water harvesting structures within waterways. Um, and they're all just like reminders of, Hey, did you think of this? Hey, don't forget this important point. Um, and, uh, so I don't, I don't forget what should be obvious, but is forgotten. Um, so I'm more likely to succeed and less likely to fail. Yeah, that's such a good principle. And I know you're using the example of harvesting water off of a road in a rural area, but your examples of doing so in urban areas, especially for people who live in a dryland context like yours and think that they don't have enough of a catchment area to be able to gather enough water to make any meaningful difference is that you said that, you know, if you can tap into the runoff from roads, especially, or any other paved over structure that's not infiltrating, you can expand the area from which you're harvesting from by like 10 times or more. Oh, yeah. And you can increase the available rainfall by 10 times or more. So uh, um, the, you know, I've had the chance to go to even drier areas um, like, uh, um uh, oh, shoot, I'm for Jeddah. Yeah, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So there mm -hmm. they only get two and a half inches of rain a year. And yet there is a rich history of water harvesting throughout the region. Because before the time, the recent time of mechanical pumps, um, people were entirely reliant upon harvested rainwater in these dry climates. So they made the most of it. They made the most of every drop that fell. So it, the drier your climate, the more important it is to harvest water. And on the reverse, I could say the wetter your climate, the more important it is to harvest water and cycle mm. it. Um, 
because uh, water harvesting, as I advocate it, buffers all extremes. It buffers the droughts. It re reduces the time of drought. It buffers floods. It reduces the time and the severity of drought of flooding. Um, so all all that is key. And in here in my dry community of Tucson, and this being the summer being a record year of drought and heat, um, we only got one good rain this summer. We usually get, you know, at least a dozen. We only got one. And, uh, and when I say a good rain, I mean that it, there's a, enough rain that we get uh, a good amount of runoff. So we only had one of those. Nonetheless, um, where people, uh, myself and, and some neighbors included, um, set up water harvesting earthworks to capture the, um, the runoff off the street and other surfaces, um, those filled in that one rain event. Whereas neighbors that were not doing any harvest of water, everything rapidly drained away and evaporated out. And their plants still look desiccated. Um, whereas those of us who created these water harvesting structures and captured the rain, the one time it fell this summer, everything's looking great. Um, now, of course, you could also go to a neighbor who's not doing any water harvesting, but is pumping city water and irrigating. Well, that doesn't, I don't look at those. That's, that's not a natural that's system. Count. That's cheating. <laughs> yeah. That's not informing me of anything. Um, so, but looking at the, comparing the systems where folks are not bringing in any outside water, the, the system is just reliant upon what's there. It's dr very dramatic to see the difference. Um, and it's seeing that difference. That's what really juices me and sparks me uh, to continue this work. Um, because with climate change getting worse, and um, it can, it's very frustrating for me to see how um, temporal our thinking is, how we, uh, we seem to respond to what seems to be the most immediate urgency um and too often let uh you know climate change resiliency uh we let that go and instead are addressing with something else before us which yeah politics whatever but we should be looking at climate change in terms of politics okay i'm not going to go down that that vent <laughs> spiral but we'll um, do that another episode <laughs> yeah but the the key thing i want to say here the the uh the, the juicing thing, the life affirming thing is, uh, it's very apparent to me to see the response to what we're doing around here that right now with work that you can do in a matter of hours, you can have a big effect on buffering our climate extremes. Um, so with work, very simple work we did with hand tools and neighbors, we have oasis spots that are still hydrated, they're shaded, they're much cooler, we have greater density of wildlife habitat, and we're producing wild native foods where we're harvesting the water. And the soil has got more organic matter, the soil profile is deeper, it's richer, there's far more life within it. And when you compare to the drained areas, which are desiccated and they're hotter, um, and they're unraveling. So, uh, there's, there's so much we can do so easily. Um, and the great thing is, uh, you don't have to leave home to see examples of this. If you know how to look. Man, on those wonderful words of inspiration, Brad, could you tell us where people can find the resources that you have at water or the harvestingrainwater.com, the two books that you have in new editions, and some of the other projects that you're working on where they can find some examples of what you're talking about? Yeah. So when I just mentioned at the end there that, you know, if you just know how to look, that is a major focus of my books, my teaching, my workshops, um, is enabling us to see in new ways and then to act upon that seeing. 
So uh, you can get my books um, at my website, harvestingrainwater.com, and you can get it anywhere books are sold. But it, it's especially great for me and the whole effort if you can buy direct from me, because that way there's no middle person taking a cut. And uh, I'm able to direct more resources to the generation of more books, more free resources I put up on my website, and so on. So again, harvestingrainwater.com is the place. The title of the books are Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2. And I recently came out with brand new, expanded, revised, full-color editions. So um, I highly recommend you get those as opposed to the old editions, because I've made um, a dramatic amount of significant changes. Um, I've removed strategies I no longer can stand behind uh, and have brought in a lot more, for example, of the Zedike-inspired strategies that um, I find are uh, exemplary. Um, and uh, there's plenty of free resources on my website, including plant lists for different bioregions, um, lots of image galleries and videos for rainwater rooftop systems, street runoff harvesting, gray water harvesting systems, um, air conditioning condensate harvesting, um, systems on fertility like compost toilet systems and so on. Um, and uh, um, so check all those out. And a new, uh, well, it's not it's not a new effort. It's just a new branding of a long time effort. Is uh, check out um, my neighborhood forestry work. So if you go to Dunbar Spring Neighborhood Foresters.org, again Dunbar Spring Neighborhood Foresters.org, that's um, the website for the neighborhood forestry effort that I'm doing within my neighborhood. Um, but we've set up the website and all the templates and the tools so that any neighborhood anywhere can use them. Um, so yeah, check that out as well. And another effort um, where we've got a great um, cookbook on Sonoran Desert wild foods, um, how you can grow them, steward them, harvest them, process them. Uh, the cookbook being Eat Mesquite and More, that's available at desertharvesters.org. And even if you're from another bioregion, again, that can be a great template for your region because um, you can open up the book to any month of the year and see, oh, well, what's harvestable or plantable at this time of the year um, and gives you all the steps. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's plenty more, but that's the that's the main stuff on, on the table right now. And, oh, I'll just mention, too, I'm also really into live storytelling. That's all been put on hold with COVID at the moment. But uh, um, you can check out the storytelling page on my website, um, harvestingrainwater.com. Yeah, that is a good list of resources. I've checked out the storytelling event that you guys do, and it's, uh, it's really engaging. It's kind of along the lines of the moth or other people who listen to podcasts like that and enjoy live storytelling. It's uh, it's a really good resource. I'll be sure to put all the links for this on the show notes for this episode on the website. And Brad, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I've gotten so much out of the body of work that you've published online and the educational resources that you've put out there have helped me a ton in giving solid advice and direction to my clients as well as informing the projects that I've done around the world as well. So I really want to thank you for that. And I look forward to continuing to follow your work and, and hopefully doing another episode like this in the future. That'd be great. I'd love it. And, uh, you know, again, thanks for the opportunity. And, and I just remembered uh, a couple other things I want to share with y'all. Um, By all means. That I'm working on. So uh, because international shipping is crazy expensive, um, for some, the, the books can seem uh, not so accessible. That's why I've now got an ebook edition of my first book, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. So there's no shipping cost. Um, and the awesome thing about it is you can have it on your phone at any time. And I found it great for using with clients and stuff. I can pull up imagery of what I'm talking about at any point, show them a case study, um, show them a calculation so we can figure out how much water they'll harvest and how many plants that'll support. Um, 
And I am also I'm currently working on an ebook edition of volume two. I hope to have that out in November. Um, check the website for updates on that. And also, I'm currently working on a Spanish edition of my first book. So um, we're halfway through the translation. Um, we hope to have the translation wrapped up by the end of 2020. And uh, we'll, we'll release that in digital ebook form, um, hopefully early in the new year. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Uh, I've been looking for a Spanish resource like that to bring over to Spain here with some of my work and some of the courses that I'm hoping to launch in the upcoming year. So definitely keep me informed when that one comes out. Yeah, you bet. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brad. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. Well, thanks again. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show. 